Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together, shall we? Well, Father God, we thank you that you have revealed to us through your word that Jesus is not just the creator, but he's the king. And Lord, as we study Matthew's gospel this morning, speak to us, Lord, we pray. Challenge us. And Father, encourage us. Lord, as we consider, Lord, all that is yet to come. Lord, the wonders of the the plan you have laid down and revealed in your word. And that, Lord, we, of all people, have become beneficiaries of that incredible plan because of your amazing grace. Lord, just take... The words that I speak now, Lord, and just speak to each and every heart here, Lord, those that hear this recording afterwards, that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. So we ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we had the pleasure as a fellowship of studying through Matthew's gospel verse by verse not all that long ago. But this morning, as we continue our journey through the Bible, um, again, this year we're going from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to do it in 48 sessions just to give a great overview. Uh, again, very much like when you're in a helicopter, you see things from the sky that you don't necessarily see when you're on the ground close up. And that's what we're trying to do. We're just getting an overview of God's Word. We're seeing how all these things fit together. And so as we turn now to the New Testament, as I said earlier on this morning, the Old Testament very much, if you want a simple summary, it just shows us as we are. It shows all our failings, or humanity's failings. The fact that even though God would call us to to walk with him, to be obedient, we mess up, we get it wrong, we fall, we stumble. And then we come to the New Testament, and God shows us how we can be in Christ. And that's what we're going to be seeing as we journey through these books of the New Testament. Matthew, well, also known as Levi uh, in the text, uh, the son of uh, Alphas, He was a Jew that had turned to become a tax collector. Now, you and I probably don't really get the import of that. But effectively, as far as the Jews were concerned, he'd become a traitor. He turned his back on the nation. He'd now become an appointee of Rome. Rome had this system kind of of tax farming, trying to get as much money out of the people they could. And they would take people like Matthew here, and he would make a lot of commission out of what he was doing. So they had a real incentive to try and tax people and bring this money in for the Roman government. As a result, he'd become alienated from the religious community, from the Jews that surrounded him. Uh, no doubt he'd have been excommunicated from the synagogue. And also as a result, he couldn't serve as a witness in court. And significantly, as a result of all of these things, he seems to have rejected the religious hypocrisy of his day. And this may be why he made this decision to take on this profession. He looked at the religious system. He looked at the hypocrisy in the church, if I may put it that way, but amongst the Jewish leadership. He looked at what the Jewish leaders were saying and saw how far removed it was from God's ideal. And he seems to have rejected it, moved away. We see... He mentions the word hypocrite 15 times in his Gospels. Clearly this is something that was very close to his heart. But interestingly, we see him prepare a feast for Jesus. As Jesus steps onto the scene, Matthew identifies that Jesus is different. Just as Jared was sharing with us, looking for Matthew 5, and we'll get there in a moment, but the salt and the light. There was something different about Jesus. He wasn't just one of these hypocritical religious teachers. He was a rabbi that had come onto the scene, and Matthew recognizes there's something different. There's something genuine and honest. Something trustworthy. So, one of the qualifications that a tax collector typically would have is effectively becoming a shorthand writer. Um, And Matthew seems to have had this skill. So, we see that the things he records for us, things like the Sermon on the Mount, may well have been recorded verbatim. As Jesus said it, Matthew would have had this skill. It was a skill that we know was at use at that time. And uh, we find Paul's letters, uh, some of those, uh, Tertius, for example, and others seem to have been able to transcribe what Paul said uh, almost word for word. Again, this skill very, very common at that time. So, Interestingly, God will use your day job for his purposes. See, Matthew, when he opted for this role as tax collector, he wasn't thinking about how God was going to use him. You know, and for you and I, we may not have thought about how God is going to use us in the career or the job or the position or the situation we're in. And yet all of a sudden, God will use the skills and the things that he's allowed us to obtain. 
There's no less than 60 Old Testament references that we find in Matthew's Gospel, which is incredible because we don't really find any direct references in the other Gospels, in Luke, John, or in Mark. There's allusions, but not distinct references. Matthew really focuses on the Old Testament. Matthew, as we said already, was a Levite, certainly familiar with the law, with the writings of the prophets. And his interest in writing this Gospel is to present Jesus as the Mashiach, the Messiah of Israel. And Matthew basically contests that Jesus' credentials are that he is the one who's fulfilled the prophecies regarding the Messiah. Effectively, Matthew says, let's look at the prophecies. Now, let's look at Jesus. And we see we've got an exact match. Jesus takes all the boxes. <clears throat> well, Levi, in terms of the, the calling of him, we see it's the, the culmination of two miracles that lead up to this call. First of all was the cleansing of the leper. And then secondly, the man taken with the palsy, this, this condition uh, that we, we read of. And Jesus had demonstrated his authority in this situation because he'd been able to make a person ceremonially clean who was considered an outcast. That's the example of the leper. The leper was an outcast, just like Matthew. In his own heart and mind, he knew he'd been, uh, uh, now become an outcast uh, to the nation of Israel. But Jesus had demonstrated that he could make somebody who was ceremonially unclean, cleansed. And then, with a man with a palsy, we see that Jesus not only heals him, but declares that his sins are forgiven. And Matthew, as he starts to hear these reports, no doubt, these things really strike a chord in his heart because this is exactly what he needs. And those two authorities were brought to bear on the one now who's to become Jesus' disciple. Matthew was both a, a leper in that sense and obviously a sinner as well. It's interesting, when we look at Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, we read there, And after these things he went forth, this is Jesus, and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up and followed him. That's the account that Luke gives us. Notice what Luke says. He calls Levi a publican. That's just the the phrase that Luke gives, a statement of facts. But notice what Matthew says of himself. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. The same as saying the same thing in a sense. But when Matthew records his own gospel, he notes that Jesus saw a man. He didn't see a sinner. He didn't see this outcast. He didn't look at his profession. He didn't look at what Matthew had been. He just looks at him as a man. What a great comfort that Jesus does the same with us. He looks at us as we are. You know, he comes, whatever the condition, the situation is, is while we were yet sinners, that Christ comes. And he reaches out to us and he shows us what we can be in him. And Matthew, interestingly, as we go on, sees himself then. Not as he had been, but as Jesus sees him. And we find that Matthew is given, or Levi is given this name of Matthew, this new name effectively, which means gift of God. Matthew, we're also just told in that scripture we looked at, left all and followed him. In other words, made a decisive break from the old life. Now, I don't read Greek, but I can read people that can read Greek. And when you look at the commentaries, they tell you that this was the uh, uh, arrowist participle imperfect indicative. Okay, so if you wondered. What it's saying is that it's not saying that it was a followed once only thing. But it's literally that Matthew continually followed. It was not just a, a once only event. And we have, you know, with verbs in English, we have the tenses of the verb. Uh, so it's not that Matthew did follow, as in it just happened once. But Matthew followed him. It was a continual day by day from that moment. And of course we see our own reflection there of how it should be. When we give our lives to the Lord, when we realise that he can heal those that were outcasts, that had this incurable disease of sin and forgive us our sin, we should follow him with this absolute abandon, giving everything over to him. And it's interesting when you look at what Matthew had to give up. It was quite a franchise he had. No doubt he would have been reasonably wealthy. You know, he left the work and the financial security that he had. It was also a break with Herod and the Roman government. I mean, it was a total break with any possibility of him coming back to this role again. And he was already an outcast by the Jews. Now he becomes an outcast by the rest of the world. And effectively, it's Jesus or nothing. 
And there's a number of occasions in scripture that we see God will engineer and put people in that kind of situation where they have to trust him or it's all over. Moses was a kind of case in point. Moses is there at the Red Sea. The Egyptians are bearing down on him. The nation of Israel are ready to stone him. And he has to abandon all and throw it all on Jesus and say, Lord, help. And of course God then tells him to strike the sea with the rod and the waters part. But God will sometimes bring us to those places. Gideon is another example we can cite. And so many in scripture. You know, God wants us to get to that place where we just give up everything. We've got no, conf- no confidence or comfort in our ability or what we could engineer. The theme of the book really is the coming king. And as we were going through our study a little while back, verse by verse, you know, time and time again we can see that this wasn't just applicable at that time, the fact that Jesus was there coming as their king, but also looking forward to the days in which we live, where on the horizon the king of kings will be coming back to establish this kingdom. And Matthew therefore presents Jesus as a king, the son of David. We find Matthew use that phrase nine times. And the focus really is on the messianic fulfillment of all these prophecies through the Old Testament. And particularly, one of the pivotal chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where God promises David that his descendants would sit on the throne of David forever. Again, you think of the implications, because the throne of David was a national throne. It was a Jewish throne. It was in Israel. And it's that throne that is promised to David's descendants. That's the throne that Jesus will sit on. That means there has to be a literal Israel. That means that Jerusalem has to still be there as a capital of the nation. Of course, the world tries to say that Jerusalem isn't the capital of uh, Israel. Uh, They tell us it's Tel Aviv. But of course, we're not really interested in what the world says. The kingdom of God... It's a phrase that's used 69 times in the New Testament, and you count it in as recorded in the King James. The kingdom of heaven, interestingly, is used 32 times in the New Testament, all by Matthew. So this phrase, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, a lot of people think they're synonymous. It's just one and the same thing. That's not the case. If we look at this kind of, uh, from a diagram point of view, the kingdom of God is the kingdom where God operates. It's the sphere where God is in complete control. In other words, everything. Everything that's created. God is the, the ruler of all that he's made, all that he's created. But a subset of that is the kingdom of heaven. Within the kingdom of God, of course, there'll be the bride of Christ, the church, all part of that, angelic beings, all making up the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of heaven is interesting because, in a sense, for us to understand it better, we would translate it as the kingdom from heaven. See, I could say, because I was born in Deal, I came from Deal, I could say that I'm Barry of Deal. You'd understand what I mean. But I could also say I'm Barry from Deal. And that would also, you'd understand, that that's where I came from. Well, this kingdom that Jesus speaks about, that Matthew records for us, is a kingdom from heaven. It's effectively the millennial kingdom. That's what Jesus is referring to. A kingdom that will be on this earth. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's universal and limited in scope. It's eternal in duration. The only door into it is through Jesus Christ. And it focuses on the transformation of the individual. It's an inward and invisible kingdom. And it really, again, we see within that the mystical union between Christ and believers And of course, holiness and deliverance from sin make up the kingdom of God. In addition, we find the kingdom of God is portrayed in sevens in the Bible, interestingly. We've got seven churches, seven spirits, seven dispensations that many commentators will break uh, scripture down into. But when we compare that with the kingdom of heaven, we see a distinct difference. The kingdom of heaven is a literal earthly sphere of the kingdom of God. So it's a subset of the kingdom of God. It's a physical kingdom. It's limited in its scope, but it rules over the whole earth. Centered in Jerusalem, it's a political kingdom. And it's ruled by Jesus Christ as king. Interestingly, the kingdom of heaven is portrayed in twelves. We've got twelve tribes. Twelve apostles, of course, which will reign over those twelve tribes. There's twelve kingdom parables that Jesus will give us. And there's twelve kingdom mysteries as well. There's twelve thousand that we find are sealed in the book of Revelation. And the climax is the New Jerusalem with twelve gates, twelve foundation stones, twelve thousand furlongs on a side, and so on. The twelve kingdom parables 
Interesting in themselves, you'll be familiar, of course, with Matthew 13, where we find most of them, certainly seven of them there, and Matthew 18 and Matthew 20, 22, Matthew 25 to conclude. We've got this, the parable of the sower and the seed. And that's really helpful because it gives us a great uh, introduction to parables and the, the, the language, the terminology there becomes a code that helps us to understand the other parables. And remember, of course, that parables are not these quaint little children's stories. Parables were given to conceal things from the masses and reveal it only to those who were seeking God. So we have the sower and the seed, the tares and the wheat, the mustard seed, the woman and the leaven, the treasure that's hid in the field, this pearl of great price, the dragnet, and there from Matthew 13, the forgiveness of debts, the latecomers equally paid, this parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 20. The guests at the marriage feast, and then the ten virgins, and also the stewardship of talents are given to us. All relating to the, this kingdom that Jesus speaks about, this kingdom from heaven. Well, the key phrase already we mentioned, the kingdom of heaven, 32 times is recorded. Uh, Father in heaven, 15 times is recorded. It's only recorded in one other place. Um, uh, and that's uh, in Mark. Uh, we have it recorded in two occasions, but in one other book in the New Testament. Uh, the son of David, we find ten times. Three in Mark and three in Luke, uh, it's where it's broken down. So these phrases, again, Matthew very specifically, the, the kind of terms used. The end of the age is a phrase only found in the Gospel of Matthew. That it might be fulfilled. It's kind of one of Matthew's um, kind of pet phrases he keeps coming back to. is refers to the Old Testament. So again, Matthew focusing very much on uh, the writings that have been passed down. And that which was spoken 14 times. And nowhere else in the New Testament is that phrase used. Now a brief outline of the book. We've got the introduction, which deals with the genealogy coming down to Jesus, the baptism, and the temptation in the wilderness. So really the start of Jesus' um, kind of role and ministry and mission. And then we get to the Galilean ministry. And that takes us through from chapter 5 through to the end of 18. And there's a tenfold message, there's ten miracles and ten rejections. You see real order in the way that these things are written. Did Matthew intend that? I don't know. Possibly not. But of course the Holy Spirit was overseeing the writing of this thing. And then we move down to Judah. And the, the climax, in a sense, of Jesus' ministry is Jesus is presented as king, and then the crucifixion, and then finally the resurrection. So a brief kind of breakdown. If you go to Bible commentaries, you'll probably have more thorough breakdowns, and they'll deal with each little section in, in uh, more detail. <clears throat> Interestingly, of the major discourses, so the, the talks that Jesus gives, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. It's really the manifesto of the kingdom. These are, you know, if Jesus were running a political party, these are his statements of intent. This is what he's going to do. And then we get the mystery of the, the parables uh, that's revealed to us in Matthew 13, another long discourse. And it's really speaking of the direction that the kingdom of heaven will take after Christ's rejection. And then the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 which again is prophetic, it's looking forward to the things that are going to come on this earth. It's distinct uh, similarities with Luke 21, but it's distinct and different from. Uh, it makes a very interesting study to look at Matthew 24, 25 and look at Luke 21 and see the differences. You need to observe the wording very carefully if you do, and it makes a lot of sense. Another of the major discourses we find in John's Gospel, in John chapter 14 through 17, often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. As Jesus is there on that night of the Passover that he's celebrating with his disciples. So it's interesting that Matthew records for us three of the major discourses found in the Bible. So we have a, a huge amount of information that Matthew gives us and probably again due to his shorthand skills and ability to write these things down for us. Just a couple of comments about the, the time of writing. It's interesting that there's things that Matthew doesn't record, which in a sense are a bit of an indicator of when this is written. Because Matthew doesn't mention Nero's persecutions, which occurred after 64 AD. Had Matthew been writing after that time, almost certainly he'd have recorded those things. The execution of James in 62 AD, the Jewish revolt against the Romans in 66 AD, and then finally the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Matthew doesn't mention it. Almost as if it hadn't happened at the time he's writing. Well, 
technology comes to the rescue once again and using scanning laser microscopes uh, they can differentiate between uh, 20 uh, micrometers um, of papyrus um, using uh, the heights and depth of the ink as well as the angle of the stylus used by the scribe so these things looking at the, the fragments that we've got uh, can give us great uh, in indication of which way that the, the scribe was writing and all sorts of other things. And these now have been uh, analysed and so on. They found what's been referred to as the Jesus papyri. So these, again, just, just new fragments of writing. Uh, there's three fragments in particular. They've got text on both sides. A total of 24 lines, which is a segment of Matthew's Gospel. And it corresponds exactly to the Texas Receptus that we still have today. So these are very, very old, uh, and it's been dated before 66 AD. So this is, again, not, not trying to, people try, out trying to prove the Bible. This is just people looking at this uh, ancient uh, piece of uh, um, papyri and looking at the dates and things corresponding to when it was written. This is the conclusion that's been reached. So it seems to be the oldest portion of manuscript. Uh, Dr. Carsten Thede, using the scanning laser microscope as we mentioned, um, compared it with four other manuscripts. One that had been found at Qumran, dated about 58 AD. Another one, Herculeum, uh, which was dated prior to 79. Another document that had been found at Masada, about 73 to 74 AD. And then another one that had been found in an Egyptian town. I'm not even sure how we pronounce that, Oxyrhynchus or something like that. Um, but anyway, that's where it had been found. And he compared with these documents, and the conclusion was simply um, that this part of this Jesus papyri is either an original of Matthew's Gospel or an immediate copy written while Matthew and the other disciples and other eyewitnesses were still alive. So a lot of people try and say these things were written later. The point is, when you start looking at that which we do have, the evidence we've got, everything points to the fact that Matthew really was an eyewitness of these things. He was a disciple of Jesus, he was there, and he recorded these things very soon after the event. Just as an interesting aside, if you take the Quran, you've got nothing recorded about Muhammad for many, many years afterwards. In fact, you can go up to 200 years before you have mention of some of the things that we have recorded in the Quran. Um, 200 years after the events. Uh, it's a very interesting comparison. And... Um, there's a number of people that will uh, um, thoroughly um, take apart the Quran in terms of its authenticity and show you that it doesn't have the historical basis that the Bible does. There is no document like the Bible in the world. Okay, let's um, jump into the book itself and look at some of the, the things that probably just, just from a highlight point of view uh, are worth us being aware of. Well, the book opens with the genealogies, as we're aware. This family tree. Now Luke traces his family tree right the way back to the first man. Uh, I had an interesting conversation once with a, um, a vicar of a church. And um, he was saying that all this is mythology. So I was saying, okay, so you know, do you believe that David was a real person? He said, well, yes, I, I would accept that. I said, okay. Because Luke and Matthew and so on, I mean, Luke particularly traces Jesus' genealogy back, not just from David, but he goes all the way back. Do you believe that Abraham was a real person? And he goes, oh, well, I don't know. Well, at that point, I gave up the conversation because I realized it wasn't going anywhere. You know, this is something that's come out of a liberal uh, training uh, system. You know, but the question is, if we have, and as we see here, Matthew and Luke go from Abraham down to David, if David was a real person, and there's abundant evidence that David was a real person, then was Jesse, his dad, a real person? I mean, you've got to have a real father, otherwise you can't have a real son. You agree with that, I'm sure. You know, and then what about Obed? What about Boaz? What about all the way back to the time of Abraham? Actually, we've now got compelling evidence about Abraham's existence. But what about then Terah? Did Abraham have a father? And what about Abraham's granddad and great-granddad? And you know, At which point is this supposed to become mythology or not true? Again, just refer you to Bill Cooper's book, After the Flood, if you want to dig into some of this. Uh, the accuracy of the Bible is unparalleled, and we don't need to doubt or worry about it. But again, Luke traces the genealogy right back to Adam, and then from Abraham down to David, both Luke and Matthew are identical. But from David onwards, it's interesting, because Matthew, we find, traces the line down from David, down through Solomon, going through the kings of Israel, right the way down through Joseph. Now we've got a problem because, I appreciate it's a bit dull on the screen there, but and we get to the time of the captivity, uh, around about uh, 600 BC thereabouts, and we get to Jehoiakim. Now, 
A curse is placed upon this king, and none of his descendants will ever be allowed to sit on the throne, is what the prophecy and the curse of Jeremiah speaks against him. And interestingly enough, none of his descendants actually do sit on the throne of Israel. But the problem is, Joseph, who is perceived to be the earthly father of Jesus, well, he's also from that line, which means that he's not legally entitled according to this line, because of this blood curse, to sit on the throne. So there's a problem. Well, it's interesting because Luke, in his genealogy, traces this line down through Nathan. Nathan is the second surviving son of Bathsheba, Solomon being her first surviving son. You remember the first child died, but then Solomon, her first son, and then Nathan, her second. And so Luke traces a genealogy down through Nathan, all the way down, and we come to Mary. Now, Heli is Mary's dad, and what an exception that had been agreed way back in the Torah in Numbers 27. What that had stated was that if a father only had daughters, they would then adopt the son-in-law as their own son, who would then become legally entitled to everything they have and, and so on. And so they would inherit the land and the position and the title and whatever else, just as any of their own actual sons would have done. Now, why this is interesting is because... Whilst from a bloodline point of view we have a problem, Joseph legally was the, the one on the royal line. He should have been king. But because we've got this bloodline, we have this issue. But because this line comes through here, coming down through Mary, there is no problem with Jesus sitting on the throne. And it's a very interesting study if you dig into it in more depth sometime. Chuck Misler uh, goes into that in quite great detail. Now, looking at Matthew's genealogy, we've got... 14 generations that take us from Solomon uh, down to the time of the captivity and another 14 generations that take us from the captivity down to the time of Jesus. But something else I just point out. These groups of names here, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and also Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, are omitted from Matthew's list. Now some people say, oh, look, Matthew's made a mistake. He just forgot to record them. Did he? Well, let's look at what we actually find in Scripture. Again, these three individuals... Um, for various reasons, uh, they all end up being killed. Now, back in Deuteronomy, the God, God had said regarding individuals that were wicked, that wouldn't trust or follow him, the Lord will not spare him. Well, it's interesting because these three individuals all end up being killed. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Well, how interesting it is that when we look at those genealogies in Matthew, those individuals have been blotted out, consistent with what God has said in his word. Now, you may also be aware of the incredible complexity of the text that we have. Now, Dr. Ivan Pannon, some of you may have heard this name, when we were going through our studies, we spent a, a bit of time on this. But he was this chap born in Russia in uh, 1855. He was exiled at an early age, goes to America, graduates at Harvard, but then he becomes a Christian. And he discovers the rest of his life to studying the structures in the Bible, particularly the way the Bible text is grouped around sevens. Now, he spent the next 50 years of his life generating 43,000 pages of these discoveries until in 1942 he went home to be with the Lord. Now, if you look at the Greek alphabet, if you take an alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, like our A, it has a numerical value of 1. The beta, 2, gamma, 3, delta, 4, epsilon, 5, and so on. So each letter has a numerical value. Now that's just interesting because if you add up in, in Greek uh, the name of Jesus, it comes to 888, uh, which is interesting in itself. Uh, if you understand anything about the numbers and the way they work, um, we have 8 uh, seemingly always referencing new beginnings. Um, and so, just uh, interesting there. Now, we've got that genealogy, that family tree. It's one of those portions of scripture, if you're doing a Bible study, it can get a bit tedious just reading a list of names. Uh, Joy this week was reading through with Marla. They were going through um, the list of names in Genesis 10. And uh, Marla was just laughing at, at Joy, thinking that Joy was just making these names up, but no, they were actually there. Because we've just got a list of names. What does it mean? You know, well, again, when you dig in, you find some incredible discoveries. Now, one of the things that Ivan Panner discovered is that all the words in this genealogy, the total number of words in that genealogy, are, di are divisible by seven. Now, if you were going to write a family tree, you think of your own family or make one up, and you were to write it with the number of words, the total number of words being divisible by seven. In other words, you've got to have seven, 14, 21 words or whatever. 
But then if we said we're going to add another constraint, and that is that the number of letters you use also have got to add up to a multiple of seven. You're thinking, yeah, I could probably do that. It might take a bit of time, but we could work that out. But then if we said the number of vowels and the number of consonants also be divisible by seven. Now, most of you are probably thinking, well, where's my dictionary? Which one's the vowels? Which one's the consonants? But then, if we were also to add another constraint and said, but the number of words that begin with a vowel have also got to be divisible by seven. And then the number of words that begin with a consonant also divisible by seven. If we then said that the number of words that occur more than once have got to be divisible by seven, or that occur in more than one form, divisible by seven, or words that just occur in only one form, divisible by seven. You see, if you were to try and do this, I think you agree already, this is an impossible challenge. The number of nouns divisible by seven. Only seven words that are not to be nouns, names and so on. And the number of names also should be divisible by seven. And only seven other kind of nouns are permitted. The number of male names divisible by seven. The number of generations divisible by seven. Well, all of that is found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ as found in Matthew 1 to 11. It's staggering if you actually stop to think. And that's, of course, in the Greek. In the remainder of chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, there's 161 words, which is 7 times 23. There's 105 forms of the words that are used. That's 7 times 15. There's 77, uh, type, or 77 actual words that are used. Some words are used more than once, obviously. So that's 7 times 11. The words that the angel speaks, we've got 28 words, which is 7 times 4. We've got the value of those words if we add them up in the Greek, 52,605, which is 7 times, I'm sure you've probably worked that already, but 7 times 7,515. The 35 forms, again, divisible by 7. And the value of those, divisible by 7, and so on. This is um, remarkable. When we go to Matthew chapter 2, it carries on. The vocabulary there, the same thing. Divisible by 7. The number of letters, the number of forms, the values, again, of all those things. Uh, the vocabulary that's used, the forms of that. Again, all divisible by 7. This is impossible to do by just effort, or even just by random chance. If you could write out a family tree every ten minutes, and just to accidentally write out a tree that had just nine of those features, it's been estimated it'd be somewhere in the region of 40 million plus attempts just to stumble across it. It would take you somewhere in the region of 3,362 years. Now, not many of us have got that much time to spare. You'd never do it. And interestingly enough, if you work on a family tree with 34 of those constraints... It would take a million supercomputers over four million years. That's the best computers we have today, working at top speed. I mean, that's not going to happen. So how did it get there if it's not by the design of God? You see, some of you may think this is just a, does it matter? Yeah, it does matter because it just shows you that this book is absolutely, totally, utterly unique. We can trust this book. This really is God's word. And incidentally, Ivan Pannon identified 75 different features. It's beyond the realm of human understanding to get to that kind of complexity. And then, by the way, as well, Matthew uh, uses words that don't occur by the other uh, authors. So then you have to conclude, did Matthew write his gospel last? Well, no, the problem is that Luke and John also, and Mark, also have words that are not used by the other authors. So did they all get together and conspire to do this? Or No, it makes nonsense. Another area that we see this incredible design is where the way the Gospels are laid out, laid out. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. Again, coming down from Abraham, dealing with the legal side of things. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, Luke the son of man, and John the son of God. And we'll look at the other Gospels as we go through them. But Matthew focuses on what Jesus said. And it's to the Jew the first miracle we find recorded is the leper cleanse, very Jewish in its theme. It ends with the resurrection. They had the camp around the um, tabernacle in the wilderness, and the campsite was on the east. We'll talk about that in a subsequent study when we go through some of the other Gospels, why those things were important. We have looked at it before. The, the tribal standard that you see for the camp was the sign of Judah. And Jesus, of course, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The, the face of the cherubim also, we find, is the face of a, a lion. Again, synonymous with these things. There's so much design through the whole of the Bible and the way these things are brought together.
And I just want to highlight one thing, and that's simply what uh, a good friend of mine once called the predestination of free will. There's this question about, you know, is it, you know, predestination? Is everything predetermined by God? Or do we have free choice? And scholars have debated this down through the centuries. And I love this, the predestination of free will. God has already decided, predecided, that we have the free will to make the decisions that he knows we'll make. And it kind of scrambles our brain a little bit. But I love this verse from Ephesians. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the promise of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. If God can engineer those details in the Bible in the way that he's done, you know, down to the level beyond that which we see on the surface within the text, how much is God able to deal with things in our own lives? If just we will abandon and leave the driving up to him. It's kind of like taking our hands off the wheel and letting him take over. Well, Matthew chapter 2. Interestingly, we read now, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now I can't not put this in because it's so important because we've got such a mess of tra- that tradition has made for us. The Magi, who were they? Where did they come from? Why did they travel so far? How did they know about this king? How many were there? And why was all Jerusalem troubled? The reason people say there were three was because three gifts were bought. Well, if we dispel just some of the myths here, we get the Christmas cards, of course, which show these three kings coming on camels, you know, and they bear their, their gifts and they're dressed in these nice oriental robes and so on. And some suggest they came from different continents. Well, interestingly, in the fourth century, three skulls were found. Just, just three skulls. They didn't have any labels attached to them. But somebody said, well, they must be the, the Magi. They must be the kings. And of course that tradition then built and grew. And so you can actually go to Cologne Cathedral today in Germany and you can find in the cathedral this lovely gold-plated ornate tomb where these three skulls are now interned inside. Um, and you can go and see this, this very elaborate ornate thing. I mean, all of that is just pure tradition. There is no shred of evidence whatsoever. What's interesting is that Matthew calls them the wise men. In fact, the word, the word he uses, uh, we have it translated wise men, uh, but the word he uses in the original is magi. Magi were actually one of the most powerful groups of men in the ancient world. The magi would have certainly been very, very well known at that time. They were the priests of media. They, they occur all throughout scripture. They were renowned for interpreting dreams, but they had mixed up the science of astronomy with the superstition of astrology. And they started trying to predict the future, uh, for uh, fortune-telling, sorcery, and so on. And uh, the word magic, by the way, is derived from the word magi because of the things they were into, as is the word magistrate, because of this legal power they had. You see, they had a political and religious component. They were involved in appointing kings within the realm. Now we find them occur within the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar seeks their advice and so on. And as a result of things, we talked briefly when we were going through studying Daniel, but Daniel becomes appointed as the head. It's incredible, this was a hereditary priesthood, but Daniel is given this position as being head over the Magi. And interestingly, it would seem that Daniel shared with him this incredible vision, this knowledge, this prophecy that the Lord had allowed Daniel to know, that the Messiah was coming, this king was coming to Israel, and it would be at an appointed time. In fact, Daniel actually gives us incredible detail, prophetically pointing to these things. And it would appear that Daniel had shared with these magi what was going to happen. For the best part of five centuries, they wait until suddenly they see a star in the sky at the time that Jesus is born. If we look at this on a map, the area we have, the Parthian Empire where the Medes uh, would have been the Medes and the Persians, the Magi would have been part of this empire. Um, they were uh, kind of right butting up against the Roman Empire of Jesus' time. Now, this kind of buffer zone sat between the two. Now, interestingly, within that we have Israel. We have the area that Herod was ruling over. Imagine what would have happened when this entourage with thousands of cavalry and outriders suddenly arrive at Jerusalem. And they come and say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? 
Because Herod was a Roman appointee. He was Idumean. He wasn't Jewish. He had no right to sit on the throne. And they come and ask, where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? As far as Herod was concerned, this was about to be a major uprising against Rome. That's why all Jerusalem was shaken. So when we get to Christmas and when we start to get those lovely little Christmas cards through, hopefully that will let you see there's a lot more to that than just the, the tradition that has made God's word of no effect. Let's jump on though in um, Matthew's Gospel. We get to the manifesto of the king in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. The Sermon on the Mount as we have it referred to. In the first 16 verses, really it's the relationship of the king's subjects to self. Then Matthew five seventeen to 48, to the law. Matthew 6 deals with our relationship to God, and Matthew 7, to others. So there's a very kind of distinct breakdown of what our king is saying is going to be like in his kingdom. I just want to read you a quote from Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers says this, Fancy coming to men and women with defective lives and defiled hearts and wrong mainsprings and telling them to be pure in heart. What is the use of giving us an ideal we cannot possibly attain? We are happy without it. If Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard we cannot come anywhere near. But if by being born again from above, we know him first as saviour, we know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. Another comment Roswell Chambers, he says this, The Sermon on the Mount produces despair in the heart of the natural man. And that's the very thing Jesus means it to do. Because immediately we reach the point of despair, we are willing to come to Jesus Christ as paupers and receive from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the first principle of the kingdom. Well, the Sermon on the Mount raises the, the teaching of the law, as it were, to the nth degree. It takes you to the heart behind the law. Chapter 12, just moving on, just picking out some, some key points from the book. Well, it's a turning point in Jesus' ministry, a very important point in terms of Matthew's gospel as well. You see, at this point, in fact, let me just read a quote from Maral F. Unger. It says this, No longer was the kingdom preached to Israel. Rejection of the kingdom messengers was seen in the accusation of the Pharisees concerning breaking the Sabbath. So we see this twist that Jesus has been presenting to Israel up until this point, And suddenly the doors close. Israel rejects. And suddenly we then move into this period where Jesus starts speaking in parables, concealing from them. Chuck Mizdor makes this comment. There is a view that suggests that chapter 12 ends a presentation of the kingdom to Israel. In a practical sense, the rejection of Jesus Christ did not happen at the cross, but in chapter 12. One will note that Jesus shifts gears dramatically in chapter 13. Jesus alters his style and approach amazingly. So just to help you as you read through, as you study Matthew's gospel, be aware that in Matthew chapter 12, there's this definite switch of Jesus not now presenting to Israel, but speaking to his own. And of course then brings us to Matthew 13, where we have these uh, seven kingdom parables. We mentioned this earlier. The power of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, and so on. Now, again, we see the design in Scripture. We've got these seven kingdom parables. I appreciate the text is a bit small, but going across here, these will be in the PowerPoint notes for those who want to look afterwards. Um, we've also got seven letters to seven churches that Jesus gives us in the book of Revelation. And they marry up and tie up with each other. We have looked at this previously, and maybe one day again we'll get to go through it in more detail. But each one seems to map the other. We've also got seven ages, distinct ages of the church, which very much are revealed to us in those letters in Revelation. But once again, the kingdom parables and these letters map the historical ages of the church as we go through. For example, the hidden treasure. We often liken to the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Um, gives up everything to hold on to this one great truth that we are saved by grace. The interesting the pearl of great price. The pearl is a Gentile thing. It's non-kosher for the Jews. And yet it's taken from its place to become something of beauty, something of adornment. Maps with the Church of Philadelphia. And the Church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation, this promise is given that Jesus will take us out of this world before the time of tribulation. 
And of course we see the time that we're living in now, really going from 1750 to the days that we live in, that the Lord will take the Gentiles, non-Jews, non-Koshu in that sense, and make us something of beauty, something of adornment, as we are the bride of Christ. So many of these things, it's just an incredible series of uh, designs and uh, intentional things. We've also got seven churches that are written to by Paul that also map all of these things as well. I mean, the church... And Jesus writes to in Ephesus, of course linked with Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. But the book of Ephesians very much dealing with the, the betrothal of the nation to the Lord, the early church and so on. Every single one of those steps. Uh, it's interesting again, the book of Thessalonians, what's well, the book that seems to major very much on the rapture of the church. All of these things, again, just so much design there. Just kind of whet your appetite to, to study them in a bit more detail. Well, Matthew chapter 14, just a verse we read in the opening of that. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and it carries on. And we read the chapter, and of course we're aware of the things that happens. It gives us the details of John the Baptist beheading and so on. But there's even more detail, just a little bit behind the text, that if you dig a bit deeper, you see. Matthew 12, as I mentioned, is the rejection of Israel by their Messiah. Chapter 13, very much looking at the church age and into the kingdom. Then chapter 14 is really the things that are following the church age. There seems to be a definite progression and a plan here. So how is that so? How are the things in Matthew 14, the things following the church age? Well, look at what we have there. We've got a king in Matthew 14, Herod, who's a usurper. He's no right really to be there in a situation of adultery. Well, think as well, of course, of Antichrist. He also sets himself up as a king. He's a usurper. And he's in this adulterous relationship with this false religious system. Herod ends up killing a prophet, John the Baptist, who was an Elijah-like herald. What does Antichrist do? Well, he'll end up killing, in fact, as it happens, two prophets. One of them probably will be Elijah. Interestingly, that whole event was really forced on his hand by a woman. Herod did this because of the complaints, the, the, the comments by this, uh, this uh, lady, this family member, made him feel very bad. And so he had to do it. And of course, in Revelation, we find that Antichrist is being uh, coerced by the false religious system. Revelation 17, 18 deal with that. Of course, we know that Israel, in the chapter 14, Israel, the, the people, go off into the wilderness to hear Jesus. And 12 basketfuls of food are gathered up after the event. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, we find that Israel will flee into the wilderness and they'll be provided of by the Lord. It's very much a parallel. Interestingly, just numerically, 12 seems to be a number that's often associated with Israel in Scripture. Five being the number of grace, two the number of witness. The whole of that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Speaking of God's grace, God's witness to the nation. Again, that... Twelve symbolic of Israel are sent into the storm. The twelve disciples go off into a storm. You know, in the tribulation time, Israel will effectively be sent off into a storm. And what happens? Well, Jesus departs. In Matthew 14, Jesus departs. He goes up to a mountain to intercede, to pray. But in the time of Revelation, Jesus has gone back to his throne in heaven. But there we find that there's intercession made. And then finally, a Jew happens to be Peter calls out in the midst of this, this storm that they're in. And Jesus comes to them and meets them in the midst of their turmoil. And just as it will be in the tribulation, the Jews will cry out. They will recognize Jesus. And Jesus will come and deliver them. Incredible design we see of these things. Matthew chapter 16, another momentous moment. This is the autumn winter of AD 31. This is the countdown, as it were, to the crucifixion now. They're up in northern Israel, Caesarea Philippi, a place where the Romans would come on holiday and they had hot baths there and a place full of iniquity and so on. And this is where Peter asks, you know, you know, Jesus asks Peter, who do men say I am? You know, it's kind of look around at all the things in the world. Look around at all the things you can have. All the iniquity and the adultery and the sin and everything else. And Jesus says, who am I? And Peter there makes the comment that you are the Son of God. And then we read, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And so 
They're up here shortly after this. They go up to Mount Hermon. There's a situation where the three of them with Jesus have the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. They, Moses and Elijah appear, which is interesting itself as we looked at when we studied that. They then come back down to the Galilee region and then they make their way down to Jerusalem. All the way, on a number of occasions, Jesus makes the point, I'll be in the grave for three days and three nights. I'm going to be crucified. He keeps saying to them. They don't understand it. Now, We'll cover this in more detail over the next few weeks as we look through um, what we refer to as Passion Week. But we know quite clearly from Scripture that Jesus rose on the third day. Now, before the third day, I'm sure you'll agree you'll have to have the second day. And before the second day, anybody want to have a stab at this? First day. Yeah, you're good. Okay. And before the first day, well, effectively day zero. Okay. And then just tracking that back through the end of the the week as it were we know the resurrection occurs on the third day we know the crucifixion therefore has to occur on day zero it makes it quite easy to work all this out the resurrection was the first day of the week we know that day was a sunday so if we track back actually it's not complicated we can realize that the crucifixion didn't take place on the friday it took place on the thursday now we can corroborate this a number of ways from scripture the problem again is that tradition has messed up so much of what many people believe this week in itself is one of the most amazing weeks in history and we see so many fulfillments of prophecy we'll touch on this briefly again in a little while but in matthew 18 a really another amazing thing that we just see again the design in scripture matthew 18 21 22 peter came to him and said lord how often shall my brother sin against me and i forgive him till seven times and jesus said unto him i say not unto thee until seven times but until 70 times seven now i have to say If we look at various translations, we'll get all sorts of ideas. Uh, NIV, New Century Version, will tell us that it's 77 times. How they get that from the text, I have no idea. If you look at the Greek commentaries, I just don't know how they've managed to translate that. But you look at other versions, and they'll give you all sorts of other things. Some will say, oh, up to 70 times 7. Okay, well, maybe they, they understood it, maybe not. But the implication is that Jesus is saying here, and what a lot of people will say, Jesus said, oh, you should just forgive lots. Is that what he said? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus gives something very specific here. He says, until 70 times 7. Now, is Jesus saying you're going to forgive 490 times? And if somebody wrongs you 491st time, you can bop them on the nose and that's it. You're you're justified to do that. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But I think the the clue to this lies partly in what Peter says. See, Peter isn't randomly asking a question, uh, how often should I forgive somebody that sins against me? Uh, Let's say seven times. No, Peter says, how often shall I forgive somebody who sins against me? Up until seven times? Now you and I miss the import of that because we're not Jewish. But if you go back and you look in the Torah, you'll find they had something called the year of Jubilee. Which was seven times seven, was 49, the 50th year, all debts cancelled. Everything forgiven. Peter was being a good Jew and asking a good Jewish question. He's saying, Jesus, should I forgive up until the time of the Jubilee. Jesus says, no, you should forgive up until 70 times 7, 490. Did Peter understand? Yeah, I think Peter would have understood. This is what Jesus was saying. We start with Abraham. apologize the text is a bit small, but to get it all in one page. So Abraham, from the time that he's born and called and so on, to the Exodus... We have a period of 75 years is the age he's at when he enters the promised land. Plus the 430 years from that point until we get to the Exodus. We've given those dates in scripture. Totaling a period of 505 years. But if we take away from that the time of Ishmael, 15 years when Abraham was in effect out of God's will. We're left with a period of 490 years. Coincidence? Let's carry on. If we go from the period of the Exodus to the temple, we're given the date it began, it's 594, um, uh, there, plus uh, the extra seven when it was completed, it gives a total of 601 years. But if we detract from that, the 111 years, during the times of the judges, the dates are recorded in the book of Judges for us, when they were in servitude to the other nations, when they were outside of God's will, we're left with a period of 490 years. How interesting. 
But it carries on. Because then if we go from the temple, the time of the temple, to the uh, Arctic, this is from um, when the temple's built with Solomon, to the Arctic of Artaxerxes. And again, we've got these dates recorded. So 1005 BC, it takes us up to 445 BC when this command is given by Artaxerxes. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, goes before the king and petitions him because Jerusalem is still laying in ruins. And they grant him this permission to rebuild the walls of the city and everything else. The temple is already rebuilt by this point. Well, again, if we look at the Babylonian captivity, the time when Israel were out of step with God, this judgment that God had promised upon them, and we detract the 70 from 560, once again, a period of 490 years. And then we get to the big one. We get to the final one that starts from the edict of Artaxerxes to the time of the second coming. And this is given to us in this incredible prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. We're told that there's going to be 483 years after which the Messiah will be cut off. Well, that 483 years is concluded on the very day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He comes as the king, bringing peace. Of course, Israel rejects him. But that 483 years we have there, we've then got this interval now, this, this church age that we're part of. It's indeterminate in length. We don't know how long. But we know from Scripture that there is another seven years prophesied. Daniel makes this very clear. The 70th week of Daniel is often referred to. You add that 483 and 7, we're left with a period of 490 years. You see that God has had a complete control over history. The incredible thing is when you look at this then, that what Jesus was saying to Peter, when Peter says, how often should I should I forgive my brother? Up until the Jubilee, kind of like hands on braces, that's good, isn't it, if I do that? And Jesus says, no. Up until the kingdom comes. Because then Jesus has come back. Jesus will establish his kingdom. He will be the one that will be doing the judging and the ruling and the reigning. It's an incredible, prophetic model that we find laid down through scripture. And Jesus just alludes to at that point. Just be careful with the text. Don't trivialize it. Don't say, oh, it must mean something. Take it as it says. Well, as we come just to the end of the Gospel of Matthew then, the rundown, chapter 21, as they drew near nigh unto Jerusalem, they would come to Bethpage and the Mount of Olives. And to start with, we find they come to Bethany, and they stay at the home of Lazarus. This is going to be the place where they stay for their last week. It's about a half an hour journey, two-mile walk or so into Jerusalem from here. And actually, it had been the reason they'd already been here once, and Jesus had come and raised Lazarus, and then Jesus had left and moved away for a while to keep out of the public eye. And now we get to this last week and Jesus comes and he's sitting there, he has a meal. People come down to see him because they've heard about Lazarus who's been risen from the dead and they know Lazarus is there, they know Jesus is there and they purposely come out to see him. And as we go, in John's Gospel we're given some great details, we map all of these things together. And John says, six days before the Passover and this is when this evening meal occurs. We then get the days carry on. It's on the Tuesday that we'll look in just a moment is when we have this um, discourse that Jesus gives from the Mount of Olives. Talking talking about all the end times, the things that are going to happen. We go to the following day. This becomes the day of preparation as they get ready for the Passover. And in the evening, and the Jewish day begins in the evening, they get to the 14th. Uh, In the Jewish calendar, that's when Jesus celebrates the Passover. It was just the night before that Judas had got so incensed by this ointment that had been this costly ointment that had been shed. And this is when Judas goes to the high priest and tries to do this deal with them. Just twenty four hours later, Judas then comes back as they end up in Gethsemane, they bring the guard with them, and then Jesus is taken out the following morning and crucified. And then we get the three days, three nights, the first night, first day, second night, second day, third night, and then Jesus rises on the third day. Again, all these details are there in scripture, you just do a bit of diligent searching. Let's just talk briefly about Matthew 24, because again, on the Mount of Olives is where this takes place. And this is Jesus' final major discourse. He gives this dramatic glimpse into the future. He's going to foretell the destruction of the temple. I mean, that was incredible for a Jew to hear this. But also then speaks of worldwide deception that's coming. Speaks of the events that will precede his second coming. Interestingly, in the New Testament, one in every ten verses relates to the second coming. And yet so much of the church today tell us that prophecy is not important. We don't need to worry about it. Jesus now has just 48 hours before he'll be crucified at this point. 
And Jesus is answering a Jewish question. We need to be very aware. And when we were studying, we looked at this in detail. Because a lot of people get confused about Matthew 24 and 25 because they don't understand the Jewishness of the question that's asked. The question is about their temple and their nation, the coming of their Messiah. And Jesus warns them that false messiahs would come, that there would be wars all around them. Well, don't we see that today in Israel? But nations embroiled in internal fighting. <laughs> well, look at the Middle East today. Has there ever been a time like this? There'd be worldwide persecution. <laughs> Once again, has there ever been a time like this where Christians are being persecuted in the ways they are all around the world? There'd be a time of apostasy. Well, again, I don't think ever there's been a time quite like we have now. And then we're told, though, that he that endures to the end will be saved. We've got to understand that whilst these things do apply worldwide, the context here is Israel. Because Israel are told, those that endure this period of time will be saved. This is not applicable to the church. The trial that's awaiting the Jews, well, looking at what we've seen over the last few weeks with the minor prophets, Jerusalem is going to be a trouble to all nations, and it is. All nations will gather together against Israel, and already that's happening. A false messiah will ratify a covenant. That is just on the doorstep. We're waiting for that any moment. A third of the Jews, we're told, are going to survive this furnace that they're going to go through. At a certain point, Israel will have to flee into the wilderness and hide. And in the midst of this persecution, they're going to cry out for deliverance from their messiah. And the Messiah will then return and deliver them. And again, all the Jews who endure to the end will be saved. Contrast that with the hope that's awaiting the church. See, the church is not appointed to wrath. A number of scriptures in the New Testament make that clear. We're promised a way of escape. Luke 21.36, Jesus explicitly says that there is a way of escape. Our blessed hope and the prize of our upward calling is the rapture of the church where we'll be taken back to the place that he's gone to prepare for us. We're told to comfort one another with those words. You see, God always removes his own to a place of safety before he brings judgment. Lot, Noah, Daniel, Babylonian captivity, all of these can be cited as examples and others in scripture of how consistent God is with that. Jesus promised that he would return and take us to the place that he'd been preparing for us. And of course, our citizenship, we know, is in heaven, from which, Paul tells us, we should be eagerly waiting for our Savior. That's the contrast between the two. Matthew 24, 25, very important scriptures. Matthew 26, then comes Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. Now, interesting here, Peter of course, bolstered by the falling over. What am I referring to? Well, you know that as Jesus is there, Judas comes with his armed guard, some 600 plus soldiers, uh, it's been estimated, would have turned up. And they say, and Jesus, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he just says, I am. And as he speaks that name, the name of the God of the burning bush, the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all these soldiers fall over. That must make Peter feel quite good. You know, Peter's on this side. Jesus speaks two words, they all go falling over. Well, Peter ends up trying to help Jesus. Okay? You've been there, you've done it. Don't mock Peter. You see, our helping always creates problems. What did Peter do? He gets his sword out, he chops off the ear of the high, high priest. You know, how was that going to help? Was he going to take them one by one? Was that his plan? You know, you just kind of wonder whether Peter, after doing that, suddenly thought that wasn't such a good move. Jesus intercedes on behalf of Peter, and Peter is spared. But our helping always creates problems. Abraham tried to help God, because God had promised a baby. They weren't having a baby. God had planned God. This will solve the problem. They end up with Ishmael. Been a constant problem to the nation of Israel ever since. And as a result, they lost peace in their family. Saul. Well, Samuel hadn't arrived for the sacrifice. I know, we'll help God out here. We'll offer a sacrifice. He's not qualified. He's not a priest. Doesn't have no authority to do this. But he does it anyway. Samuel then arrives. What have you done? As a result, he loses the kingdom. Josiah. Well, he tried to reclaim the ark from King Necho, uh, Necho of Egypt. Now, as a result, he loses his life. The point I'm trying to make is, when we try and help God out, it doesn't end up very well for, for the people that try and do that. You know, Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please him. You know, we're to be obedient. We don't need to step in and do everything. 
Why were there so many soldiers? Why does Peter charge in recklessly as he does? Well, understand that the disciples were expecting a national deliverer. That's what they thought Jesus was going to be for them. And the Jews, for the same reason, were fearing a political insurrection against Rome. And that's why Peter's ready to go in with the sword. Because he's thinking this is going to be some military conquest now. That was the, the, the Jewish expectation. That's what the disciples were wondering. You see, the Jewish leaders, of course, wanted to maintain the status quo. After Lazarus is raised, they have this discussion. And Caiaphas says it's expedient for one man to die than us to lose the nation. So Peter seemingly sets about them one by one, and Jesus diffuses that tension. And see, he already fought the real battle that night. The battle of whether or not he would go through with what the Lord, his Father, had called him to do, which was go to the cross. Three times Jesus says, if there be any other way. And of course there isn't. And Jesus sweats, we're told, drops of blood in the garden. And great anxiety and, and, and mental anguish. Because he was still being obedient to the Father's will. The lessons today, well, firstly, we've got to realize we're not fighting for a political kingdom. Just as the Jews made that mistake, the disciples made that mistake there and then. The Jewish leadership didn't get it either. You see, we're not trying to build the kingdom now. Many in the church think that's what we're about. You see, fighting social battles, which is what Peter was attempting, will simply cause those around us to lose their ears. And no pun really intended in that, because that's exactly what will happen. Just as Peter's situation dramatically proved, actually, all you end up is stopping people hearing the gospel. You see, true freedom is declared at the cross, not in the garden. You see, we mustn't prevent the cross. And that's what so often people try to do. They try to remove the cross because it's offensive to people. Well, the last tail end of the book then chapter 27 Pilate puts his sign up on the cross and they Jews challenge him saying don't put that put simply he said that I'm the king of the Jews and Pilate says no what I have written I have written we've thought it was written in Hebrew Greek and Latin what was written well if we look at it in the Hebrew it's very interesting in Hebrew just four words Yeshua it's Jesus Hanatsaroi of Nazareth and then Vimelka which is the king and then Hayudim, okay, of the Jews. They were the four words that are put there. And it's seemingly that Pilate knew exactly what he was putting on there. Because if we look at the first of those letters of each of those words, it's an acrostic. We find it's throughout Hebrew literature this is used. And it spells Yahweh or Jehovah with the name of God. So as these Jews are looking up, they're looking up on the cross and Jesus is there. And above him, it's got his name, the name of God. That's why they wanted that name removed. Incredible. And then chapter 28 finally concludes the book. And this is where we're told to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. What an incredible book this is. And, you know, the more you study scripture, the more you realize the intentional design that's there. Uh, And God is just, it's breathtaking as we realize what has been accomplished and the lengths that God has gone to, to enable us to have his word. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the design that just gives us this incredible confidence in that which you said. Help us, Lord, not to try and read into it, just simply to read it as it is and allow your spirit to teach us and to guide us. Father, we thank you that you are the king and that you will return soon to claim your throne. Father, help us to use the days in which we live to go and make disciples. Lord, teaching them of all the wonderful things you have done and most importantly, the incredible gift of salvation. This free gift of grace. Lord, we thank you for these things. Lord, allow us to comprehend and Lord, to absorb these things into our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.